Good morning, church. If you would, turn with me to Genesis 42. We're going to read verses 1 through 28. All right, chapter 42, verses 1 through 28. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that, that harm might happen to them. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor of the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is I, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined, where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why the, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. 
Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at their hearts, at this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? All right, well, if you have your Bibles there, you'll want to stay open to Genesis 42. As we continue to make our way through the book of Genesis this summer, we'll, uh, we'll actually finish up Genesis next week looking at, at Genesis 50 and the, the last of uh, the Joseph narrative here. And I hope this has been helpful for you this summer as we've, as we've looked at these, these first families, as we've seen uh, the messiness of life displayed uh, in them, the same kinds of messes and issues and, and problems that, that we encounter in our own families uh, are displayed right in the pages of Scripture. And they remind us of our great need for the grace of God. <laughs> that this God who does not treat us as our sins deserve, who, who is long-suffering with us, whose love is unfailing even toward those who reject Him, that we see this reminder of our great need for His grace. So as we continue this morning, we're going to talk about true belief and true repentance. In the lives of these brothers of Joseph, we, we see an example this morning of some men who were on the way toward repentance. They were on the path toward reconciliation. They just weren't there yet. And yet, it's so helpful to us as we look at their example, uh, we see that there is hope for us just as there was for them. Let me give you a little bit of a, a timeline of Joseph's life. We've come a long way uh, since chapter 37 last week. Uh, we've come a long way since, since then. Uh, in chapter 37, uh, all the events we looked at last week, uh, Joseph was 17 years old. We found that. Uh, there in verse 2 of chapter 37. And in chapter 37 there, at the age of 17, Joseph, the, the favored son of his father Jacob, was attacked by his older brothers and subsequently sold into slavery and ends up in, G in, in Egypt. First at Potiphar's house. He becomes a slave to Potiphar. And then through a series of events orchestrated by the hand of God in his life, he goes from being a slave in Potiphar's house to being imprisoned for a crime he did not commit. He becomes an inmate in the prison of Pharaoh. So this is Joseph in these intervening chapters between chapter 37 and chapter 41. By the time we get to chapter 41, verse 46, the scriptures say that Joseph is now 30 years old. At the age of 30, it's 13 years removed from uh, his experience as a teenager and being sold into slavery. He interprets the dreams of Pharaoh and is elevated from an inmate in Pharaoh's dungeon to the second in command over all of Egypt. We describe this like he goes from an inmate in prison to being like the vice president and actually having some power to do some amazing things. And this sets the stage for what we're going to see here in chapter 42. 
Uh, it begins there with uh, seven years of prosperity. These are the dreams of Pharaoh. There's going to be seven years of prosperity. Uh, the fields are going to be overflowing with grain. And then there's going to be seven years of famine. This was the, the word of God communicated through the dreams of Pharaoh that Joseph interprets. And so the seven years of prosperity have now passed. Joseph is, is somewhere between uh, 37 and 40 years old at this point. And the seven years of famine have begun. You're now in chapter 42 in the first two years of famine. There's not enough food and, and only, only place to go and, and find the necessary resources. And there was no Walmart. There was a, no Save-A-Lot. Is to go down to Egypt. And that's what we find here in chapter 42. So here's the truth for the day. That the marks of true faith and true repentance can be clearly seen in the lives of those God has saved. That there are some marks of, of faith and repentance that, that are seen here. The beginnings of them are seen here in chapter 42. Now again, these brothers are in process. Just like us, we, we are so many times find ourselves in process in terms of the work of God in our lives. But I want you to see the beginnings of these marks and some contrasts here that will help us to determine where am I in, in relation to true faith and true repentance. So let's begin there in verses 1 through 5. We find these brothers demonstrating what I would call the, the first mark here. And it's a contrast between avoidance and action. A contrast between avoidance and action. Jacob says, all right, boys, uh, we're getting hungry around here. We're running out of food. And somebody's going to have to go down to Egypt. And he says to them... Why do you look at one another? You can imagine they're sitting around the breakfast table. The, the, the meal is sparse that day. And they're just kind of looking at each other. Everybody knows that somebody's going to have to go down to Egypt and get some food. But they're all looking around at each other. Have you ever been in that scene before? You, you know something has to be done. I can remember a while back, uh, there was a strange odor coming from our kitchen. Um... And that strange odor was the fact that someone had forgotten to take out the trash for a few days. And we're kind of all looking around at each other like, okay, so who's going to take care of this? All right, you've had that moment where you've been sitting with a group of people. Something needs to be done, but everybody's kind of looking at everybody else going, okay, who's going to take care of this? That's the scene here in chapter 42. They were all avoiding the reality of their situation. The first truth that I want to put before you this morning is this, that we do have a natural tendency to reject responsibility. We see this all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 with Adam and Eve, the very first sinners uh, that we see uh, on the face of the planet. There was an avoidance of responsibility. When they got called out for that original sin, they begin the very same game that we enter into so often, which is passing the blame, passing the buck on down the line. And God says, Adam, what did you do? And he points to the woman. And the woman says, he says to the woman, what did you do? And she points to the serpent. And the serpent doesn't have anybody to point to. But they're, they're kind of the same kind of scene is happening here. Everybody's looking at somebody else to take responsibility. And nobody seems to want to. Because of our sin nature, we have a natural tendency to avoid responsibility. 
particularly to avoid responsibility for our sin. But true faith, as we see demonstrated here, at least the beginnings of it, true faith is a verb. It's an action word. It requires us to take action, to actually do something. Now, sometimes we misconstrue this. We, we think about faith so often as a possession. Well, you either have faith or you don't have faith. You either, it's kind of like I was talking to my, my four-year-old, uh, we were getting ready, getting ready for bed the other night, we were at the grandparents' house, and I said, hey buddy, have you brushed your teeth? And he kind of gave me this strange look, and I said, have you brushed your teeth? And then he said, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, you either have brushed your teeth, or you haven't brushed your teeth, and so we did the wonderful smell test, open up, let's see if it smells like toothpaste. Not so much, dude. Okay, so back to the bathroom. Let's brush your teeth. Okay, that, and the same thing is true that we, when we think about faith, though, we need to understand that this faith is a verb. It's an action where it requires action on our part. It's not just a possession that we stick in our back pocket for a rainy day. It requires action. Just the same as these men had to take action and head down to Egypt. So we must have an active faith. James 2 says, what good is it, my brothers? What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now don't misunderstand James. He's not saying that we are saved through works. Ephesians chapter 2 says very clearly we are saved by grace through faith. But what kind of a faith is it that saves us? It's a faith that works. Faith, are, faith is not, sorry, works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. Faith requires us to actually do something. And if we have a faith that doesn't work, James says, it's not going to work out for us very well. So this first comparison here in these first five verses, look at the next comparison. The next one is what I've called between adver aversion and admission. Between aversion and admission. Now as we see here, they're headed down to Egypt and we see that Joseph was now governor over the land. He is the vice president of the most powerful country in the entire known world at that time. And he was the one who was in charge of selling the grain that he had so wisely led Egypt to store up during those seven years of prosperity. And Joseph's brothers come and they bow themselves before him there in verse 7. And he recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him, which may seem strange to us. And yet think about this. 20 years has passed. <laughs> Joseph is no longer a 17-year-old boy. And they have no reason to expect that their little brother that they had sold into slavery was going to be the dude second in charge of all of Egypt selling it. There's no reason to expect Joseph to be in his place. And so they don't recognize Joseph, but he certainly recognizes them. And he goes on and begins to speak with them. And they said, where, where have you come from? They said, we've come from Canaan to here to buy some food. And he recognized them. They didn't recognize him. And he remembered, look at verse 9. 
And he remembered the dreams that he had dreamed. But then remember last week what we talked about. The word of God was communicated to Joseph in a day prior to them have to the people of God having the word of God, which is now the primary means by which God communicates to his people. And a day before that, Joseph was given these dreams to communicate God's word. And for those 20 years, 20 plus years, he had been clinging to those dreams. He had been holding on to the word of God that had been communicated to him. But you'll notice here that as those dreams begin to be fulfilled, the first dream is fulfilled here in this chapter. But you remember there was another dream that also involved the fullness of his brothers, all 11 brothers, plus uh, the fullness of his family, his, his father and his mother as well. Joseph was wise enough to see the first dream was being fulfilled here, and yet there's more to come. And so Joseph doesn't make the mistake that we so often do is we see a little glimmer of the promise of God and we jump out after it. He patiently waits upon God to fulfill all that he had promised. It's a beautiful picture. And so Joseph says to them, you are spies. Look at verse 9. First accusation of three times that he says to them, you are spies and you've come to see the nakedness of the land. In other words, you've come to see where we're weak. You've come to see where the defenses of Egypt are weak. You've come to spy us out that you might take us over. That was a common thing in those days. And they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. And listen to verse 11. We are honest men. Now, of all you know about these men, would you characterize these men as honest men? They have been living a 20-plus year lie in that they told their father that their younger brother Joseph was killed by wild animals, or at least they led their father to believe that. And for 20 years, they allowed their father to believe that Joseph was dead. When they themselves had sold him into slavery. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Look at verse 11 there. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. You see, we have a natural aversion to the truth of our sin. We don't, we don't like to hear about the truth of our sin. We don't like to be faced with the reality of our sin. And so these men say, we are honest men. We've only been living a 20 plus year, a two decade long lie that's, that's characterized our family. We've only been living a lie for two decades and more. And your servants have never been spies. Now if we go back to the beginning of these, uh, the story of this family and we watch the progression from where we were last week in chapter 37 through where we are now in chapter 42. No, they may not have been spies. And we've never been spies. We have been murderers. We have been adulterers. We have been liars and thieves. We have committed incest. We have been covetous. We've pretty much broken every other law, but we've never been spies. They, perhaps they could have added that to their, their sin resume. We've never been spies. We've been everything but. And I think that they reveal what is so often true of us. That, that we have an aversion to the truth of our sin. Well, God, I've never done this. I've never done anything really bad. We like to minimize our sin. They're not yet recognizing 
the reality of their sin. They don't recognize that confessed sin is sin that is forgiven and cleansed. That rather than having an aversion to the truth of our sin, that the scriptures call us to admit that we are sinners. That call us to recognize it and to admit it. To confess means to say the same thing as. What we're saying is God says clearly what our sin means before Him. The scriptures are so clear about what sin is. And how it separates us from Him. And how it's rebellion against His righteousness. And to confess means that I say the same thing that God says about my sin. Not that it's some small little thing that's inconsequential. Or trying to cover up my sin with the parts of my life that appear to have a glimmer of righteousness. But rather confession. Agreeing with God that my sin is rebellion against Him. And taking hold of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... If we say the same thing that God says about our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. This is God's promise to us, but it begins in a place of confession, not just avoiding or having an aversion to the truth of our sin, but admitting it. Let's move on. Verses 12 through 17. We see the third uh, comparison here. And it's between uh, being afflicted and being assessed. So things start to get hot here in this moment. You are spies. Joseph begins and says that the key word in verses 12 through 17 is the word test. And that Joseph was putting them to the test. Verse 15. By this you shall be tested to see if you're really spies or not. Now, one of you is going to go down uh, to your homeland and bring up your youngest brother. And, and that by this, you will be, again, verse 16, you will be tested. Joseph was putting his brothers to the test. And almost, it seems a little cruel. He speaks harshly to them and then he's putting them through one. This is the first of a, a series of three tests that he will put them through in the chapters that are yet to come. And yet, keep this in mind. These are the dudes that sold him into slavery 20 years ago. Joseph needs to know if the hearts of his brothers have truly changed. I'm sure there must have been a temptation when he sees them bowing before him. There must have been a little bit of a temptation to go, there it is. There's the answer to my dream and to reveal himself right there. But Joseph needed to know had the hearts of his brothers changed. See, that's, what, that's what repentance really is. It's a heart change. And Joseph needed to assess if these brothers' hearts had truly changed. I think oftentimes we tend to confuse our trials or our, our testings with denials of God's love. The Bible talks a lot about the fact that, that, that our faith will be tested. In fact, Warren Wiersbe is famous for saying that a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And just like we see here, that there will be many times in our life when, when God will put our faith in Him to the test. Is it because that God doesn't know the reality of our faith? No, the test is always for the purpose of helping us to see the reality of our faith. And when we think about testing in a school setting, for instance, the purpose 
of the test is not for the benefit of the teacher. Now, sometimes students think that way. We tend to think that teachers give tests just because they love to give tests. It's not that. The teacher is helping to assess the learning of the student. And the same is true with God. When He tests us, when He puts our faith to the test, it's not because He doesn't know the reality of our faith. It's because we don't know the reality of our faith. And so He puts them to the test here. First of three tests they'll endure before He reveals Himself. To them. James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, when your faith is tested. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Again, a faith that can't be tested, can't be trusted. And so when God brings the trials into our lives, when God brings times of suffering, when God allows broken relationships to emerge in our lives, when we, when we see the hand of God at work in a way that isn't exceptionally pleasant, we can trust Him and allow our faith to rise up as He calls it out in us. Verses 18 through 25, let's look at the fourth comparison here. There's a comparison between avenging and accounting. I want to focus in on what Reuben says. Reuben steps up and in this moment they, they just endured uh, three days uh, in, in jail and under house arrest. The word there is it's not the same kind of jail that Joseph was in. This is more of a house arrest kind of picture. But they got the understanding that uh, this guy's got power over us. We need to listen up here because whoever this guy is, man, he, he's got some authority. And Reuben speaks up as the oldest brother. Let's look at his words there in, in verse 22. It says, And Reuben answered them and said, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They're thinking back to 20 years prior when they sold their little brother into slavery. And Reuben was the one who stood up in that day and, said, and was trying to rescue Joseph. He was trying to keep this from happening. And Reuben's here said, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you that something bad was going to happen if we sinned against our brother in this way? If we ignored his pleas from the pit that day, that something eventually, something was going to happen. We were going to reap the consequences of our actions. God was going to avenge what we did to our brother in some way. Do you see there's a, there's a difference between avenging and accounting in relation to our sin. And I wanted to talk with you a moment about this word that, that Reuben uses here. He says, did I not tell you that there would be a reckoning for his blood? Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And I, and I would say this to us this morning. Those who are looking for a reckoning have not yet reached repentance. And I mean that on two levels. As we, as we think about the broken relationships in our own lives, first of all, and primary, the broken relationship between us and God, as long as we are looking at our relationship between us and God and waiting for Him to drop the hammer, to bring the reckoning for all the evil things we've done. And we do reserve, deserve that, by the way. Don't, don't mistake me here. We do deserve for God to drop the hammer on our sinfulness. And one day, as we look at later in the book of Revelation, we see that God will drop the hammer of His wrath on this sin-soaked world in which we live. 
But as long as we are looking for God to bring a reckoning, we've not yet come to repentance. I'll come back to that in a minute. But the same is true in our person-to-person relationships. As long as I am looking for a reckoning in one of my broken relationships, as long as I'm looking for God to step in and drop the hammer on this one who has wronged me, as long as I'm looking for vengeance, I'm not ready for reconciliation. I'm not ready for the heart change of repentance. And all of you in this room, that as we experience the effects of sin in, in, in dividing people and breaking up relationships, whether it be in our family, in our own homes, in our workplaces, whatever it is that causes uh, divisiveness among us, which James says it's ultimately a hard issue with us that causes division. We like to say, well, it's the other person's fault. That's what we always say. It's the other person's fault if they had, if they had done this right, if they hadn't wronged me in this way. And, and there is some truth to that, but we need to learn uh, to own our own part in it. But as long as we are looking for that vengeance, we will not recognize the fact that there's something even better than vengeance. There's there's true accountability. There's an accounting that's taking place here. These brothers are beginning to see the gravity of their sin. And this is an act of God's grace. It's in God's grace that He allows us to see the gravity of our sin. He allows us to see the reality of our rebellion against Him. That's an act of God's grace. You say, well, that doesn't seem very gracious. And yet it is because until we see the gravity of our sin, we will never come to repentance. As long as I am minimizing my sin and elevating the sin of others so that I can say, look, God, look how good I am in comparison to so-and-so. As long as I'm playing that game... I will never come to repentance. But in His grace, God allows us to see the gravity of our sins. What is talked about in Romans 5. The Apostle Paul writes for our instruction. He says, the law came. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's being said there is this. God gave us His law as a mirror that we might look at it and see the reality of our sin, see the grossness of our sin, see how rebellious against God is our sin, and seeing that, we would turn back to Him. That's the act of repentance. Seeing that, we would experience the change of heart. And so God brings us to the cross of Jesus Christ and says, look, this was the cost of your sin. That my perfect Son, He who knew no sin of His own, took the fullness of your sin upon Himself and poured out every last drop of His blood so that you could be forgiven because without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. He brings us to the cross in order to show us not just how much we are loved, but how much we have been forgiven. 
Finally, this morning, one last comparison occurs in verses 26 through 28. We see a comparison between accusation and adoration. Again, these brothers are in process. They are not yet at the place of true repentance. But we can look at their lives and we can model ourselves and see where we are in relation to these things in comparison to where they are. I'm going to take you back down to verse 28. So now Simeon has been uh, kept captive and the other brothers, the other nine, are going back to uh, talk with their father Jacob about bringing the youngest brother and fulfilling the things that Joseph was testing them about. And it says that as they were departing, they loaded their donkeys, they with grain, they departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw that his money was in the mouth of his sack. This was according to Joseph's test. And at this, their hearts failed, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, listen to this, what is this that God has done to us? As long as we continue to be focused on what God has done to us, we will never come to the place where we see what God is doing for us. You see, God was affecting in the lives of, of this family that was so disjointed, so ruptured because of the sin that they had allowed to eat them up like, the, like a cancer, that God was using these circumstances according to His sovereign and perfect plan for their good and for His glory. And, and they're here in this moment where God is bringing about their salvation. God is going to rescue this family through this series of events and, and all that they can say is this, what is this that God has done to us? We see them here all really pointing the finger at God. What are you doing to us, God? Nothing seems to be playing out the way that we thought that it would and yet God was being more faithful to them than they could possibly imagine. See, the reality is we are more likely to blame God than to bless Him. It's the reality for us as sinful men and women. We are more likely to blame God than to bless Him. That's our natural tendency. Things don't go the exact way that we want them to go. We don't, we don't get the job. We don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't get that new toy that we wanted. The things don't line out with our kids' lives exactly how we anticipated them to go. Circumstances don't line up. And we begin to do the very thing that they were doing there in verse 28. What is this that God has done to us? I don't know how many times I've experienced the asking of that question in my own life, and I'm sure that you've been there. We're more likely to blame God than to bless Him. What we need to remember is this, that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God was exhibiting a special grace in the lives of these brothers, and they did not yet recognize, and that's so true for us, Think back to those days before you came to know Christ as your Savior. Think back to the, the things that God was doing in your life that were leading up to that moment when He opened your eyes to the glory of the Gospel. 
And for so many of us, we can look back to those days and we can say, man, I had no idea what God was doing in those days. And in fact, for many of us, we would have been right in this place. God, what in the world are you doing to me? And all the while, we should have been seeing what God was doing for us. You see, just like these brothers whose eyes had not yet been opened to the fullness of what God was doing, that's where we often find ourselves. And we're like those that the author of Romans writes about in chapter 2. He said, or do you presume on the riches of his, of God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We do presume upon, take for granted the kindness of God, his patience with us. We even set before God our expectations. God, I've been a little good, and so you ought to do this, that, and the other for me. Here's my laundry list, God. I, I've done a little bit for you. Now you do a bunch for me. And that's kind of the, the background behind the statement here with these brothers. We, God, we're trying. We're, we're trying to figure things out here. But now it's this place of what is this God has done to us. It's the kindness of God that leads us Repentance. Repentance is a work of His grace in our lives where we turn from sin and trust in Christ. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 writes this to us. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Now, I want to say this before we move on. There is no salvation apart from repentance. So, so many have sold in our day this easy believism that just says, trust in Jesus and then you can live however you want the rest of your days. There is no true salvation apart from repentance. The constant message of the gospel is always repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from sin and trust in Christ. That is the way that sinners respond to the gospel. For God would grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces this, so there's a type of grief over our sin that is not going to lead to repentance. It only leads further down the path of death and destruction. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. By the way, we see a number of those things in the lives of these brothers in these chapters. At every point... You have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. The church at Corinth was a church that had been racked by gross immorality in their midst to the point where they were even celebrating their own patience with a brother who was engaged in gross immorality. And the Apostle Paul had called them to account in the book of 1 Corinthians. And here in 2 Corinthians, he is commending them. He is commending them for how repentance has shown itself in the midst of their congregation. He is commending them for these marks. He said, this is where I've seen real repentance, which is tied in with your true faith. You have proved yourselves innocent because you have demonstrated the fruit of real repentance and real faith. So as we think back over these five comparisons this morning, as we consider 
the marks of true faith and true repentance. I just want to ask you, where, where do you find yourself in these days? Perhaps like these ten brothers, you are still very much in process in terms of repentance and faith. You've not yet reached that place of true repentance and true faith. And I want to say this to you. There is a very real place where that's, that's okay. God is, is working in the lives of those that He will bring to salvation. He is working His grace even in unseen ways. Even if you're in that place where right now you're going, what is God doing to me right now? Would you just take a step back from that place for a moment and realize the God whom you are accusing of afflicting you is the same God whose desire would be to bless you greatly. But perhaps the road of affliction on which you find yourself is the necessary path for that blessing to come to its fulfillment. That was true for these brothers. Without this pathway down to Egypt, faced with a brother they didn't even recognize, and all the tests that he would put them through, without all of this, they would not have experienced God's greatest grace, which is this. Let me leave you with this. God's greatest grace in your life is to take hold of your sin-soaked heart and to change it. He doesn't treat you as your sins deserve you, but He also doesn't leave you in your sin. God's greatest grace is to take hold of us in such a way that He changes us, that He removes our transgressions from us, that He doesn't leave us on the pathways of destruction. And so you may find yourself this morning in that place of what is God doing to me? And I would ask this of you. Would you ask one follow-up question? What is God doing for me? What is what God wanting to do through this? No matter how difficult the path may be right now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for the example of these brothers. Thank you for the, the picture of, of wisdom we see in Joseph. Lord, I pray for those in this place right now that are racked by the question of what is God doing to me? Nothing seems to be adding up the way that they had anticipated. All the circumstances of life seem to be pointed in a downward direction. Nothing seems to be coming together the way uh, that it was supposed to according to our plans. And yet you are the God who says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. That was your plan for these sons of Jacob plan that you would bear out in all of its fullness. So Father, I pray that you would bear out in us these marks of true repentance and true faith. 
Help us to trust you even when the road is long and hard and things just don't make sense. And wherever you have us in this process of conforming us to the image of Christ, would you give us that faith that presses on? That faith that can be trusted because it's been tested. That true repentance that comes from your kindness and results in a godly grief over our sin. Lord, work in us as only you can. I pray this in Jesus' name.